So I said we're going to be looking at three different stories tonight. Obviously, one of them is Jesus calming the storm. There's also some other accounts where Jesus heals a number of different people. But I ended our reading strategically after this very first story because it ends with a question that I think summarizes the gist of every single story that we're going to look at tonight. In some essence, every story ends with a question that this first story ends, which is, who then is this? Jesus performs, he steps in, he does things that blow people's minds, and then in some form or fashion, every story ends with, who then is this? I mean, nearly every story is kind of like a scene from the Marvel movie. Every Marvel movie has this exact same scene, right? Where the superpower is done by the superhero and everybody's just like shocked and amazed by what's going on. Amen? Like, you know what I'm talking about? This is it's like a repeated scene in every single Marvel movie. You can't watch a Marvel movie without this scene, right? This is sort of like what happens at the end of every single story. Like you're having to pick your jaw up off the ground because of what you just, just saw and experienced Jesus do. And so the reason I've lumped these three stories together is because we get a glimpse at a quality of Jesus that I think Mark is trying to highlight by pushing putting these three different stories back to back to back in order for us to highlight exactly a new quality that he's wanting to bring forth to us. And that quality is Jesus' power. Now, this isn't the first time that we've seen or experienced a, a form or fashion of Jesus' power. Um, we've seen this already. There's already been healings of sicknesses and diseases that Jesus has performed in his life and ministry. But when he's done this, at, up to this point, it's primarily been done to highlight something else about Jesus. There's sort of like a compliment instead of like the highlighted focus of the story that you look at, but not so with the stories that we're looking at tonight. Mark lumps these three stories together to highlight the divine power that Jesus possesses. And so through these three narratives, it's like Mark is essentially saying that not only has God divinely opened up, torn open the heavens, where he spoke down on Jesus at his baptism, declaring that this is the son of God, that Jesus is God in the flesh. It's not just that he's doing this, nor does Jesus have the authority of God as God to forgive sins. He does this. Jesus performs, he heals a paralytic, but this is a compliment to show that he has the authority to forgive sins here on earth. But we see in the lump of these three stories that Jesus possesses never seen before divine power. And that's exactly what Mark is trying to get across to us by these three stories being lumped together. So here's tonight's question for us. So we're trying to look and gaze at Jesus, discover who Jesus is. Here's the question for us. How powerful really is Jesus? How powerful is Jesus? As we look at this text, that's the question I want you to have at the back of your mind as we're working through the details, as we're working through the chronological order of this story. I just want you to be thinking about like, how powerful is this Jesus? And as you're doing it, here's what you're going to find, all right? Here's kind of the three ways that we're breaking down the passage as we're looking through these stories. The first story, here's what I think Mark is trying to get across, that creation obeys him. Secondly, the Spirit's answer to him. And then thirdly, that disease and death surrender to him. 
That's the gist of the three stories that we're going to look at. So I want to gaze at Jesus' power together through these three different stories. Just look and be in awe at the power that Jesus possesses, and then we'll conclude with some application. All right, so here's how we're going to start. We're going to look at how creation obeys Jesus. We see this in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. So since we're looking over the course of a chapter and a half I'm just going to kind of like highlight and hit some verses through these. Usually I like to read and remind us of these passages, but we would be here till like 9 o'clock if I did that. All right? So I love you too much to make you sit here and listen to me that long. So here we go. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, creation obeys him. All right? So Jesus has just wrapped up a long day of teaching. And at the end of the day, Jesus decides that he's going to take his disciples. They're going to hop in a boat, and they're going to sail across the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a hotbed for storms, all right? So here's a picture for you so you can see. Sea of Galilee is at the very bottom. It's about 700 feet below sea level. And then you have Mount Hermon that's about 9,200 feet in height. That is just across like 30 miles south from the Sea of Galilee. And so here's what happens around the Sea of Galilee. You have the cold air of the mountains that collides with the hot air of the sea, and it just is a combustion effect for these massive storms that hit the Sea of Galilee. And it just so happens that the night that Jesus and his disciples board the boat that one of these storms breaks out. So the mountain air, the, the, the mountain air that's cold, you have the, the warm air from the sea, it collides, a storm breaks out, and it must have been just a massive storm because Jesus has these professional fishermen that are on board with him, all right? And what we see is Jesus is asleep in the stern, that you have these professional fishermen that have probably seen a number of different storms in their life and during their vocation. They've seen numerous of these storms, but they are scared. They're terrified. The Bible tells us that they're so scared for their own life, they think they're going to die. And so as the water is crashing over the side of the boat, as it's swamping the entire boat, these people that are aboard, these professional fishermen, they're scooping out water, but also holding on for dear life to make sure they don't fall out of the boat. And in the meantime, you can just imagine this, Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the stern of the back of the boat, just knocked out, not a single worry He's just completely, he's cool as a cucumber. There's nothing that's going on in his life that makes him feel like he needs to wake up and rush and hurry around, hold on for dear life. He's just asleep in the boat and they go over to wake up Jesus and they're shouting at him. Teacher, don't you care that we're gonna die? Like Jesus, all these things that you've talked about, how you care for us and all these things that you've said you've come to do, you're asleep in the stern of the boat and then there's this storm that's going on. Our lives are about to be lost. The water's coming in over the sides. Like, don't you care that we're gonna die? Now here's where we begin to see the power of Jesus because in verse 39, here's what Mark reports. He got up, he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Silence, be still. And look, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So two things happen here. Jesus, Jesus rebukes creation and then it obeys. Every Bible translation that I looked at this week, 
Every single one of them said that Jesus rebuked the wind. Oftentimes, you can look at different translations. They choose to use a different word because there can be different associations to a word that you use, but every single one of them used the word rebuked. And you, here's why, all right? You can only rebuke something that can listen to you. You can only rebuke something that can actually respond to your voice. So look, you can rebuke a child, you can rebuke an employee, you can rebuke a student, but you can't rebuke your chair, right? You can't look at your chair and say, in the name of Ikea, and then give it a command or rebuke it, and it responds to you. It just doesn't happen. That's not like how life works. But Psalm 107, 29 says this. Speaking of God, he stilled the storm to a whisper and the waves of the sea were hushed. Look, Jesus rebukes the storm because he owns it. Jesus rebukes creation because he serves as the one that it responds to. We can't go out as human beings and say something to the wind It doesn't listen to our voice. But there's something different about Jesus. When he goes out and he rebukes, it listens and it obeys. It's like when a a person's car alarm is going off in a parking garage. Like it's going off, it's blaring, everybody's looking around. Who in the world, whose car is this? Somebody come take care of this. And so the person that owns the car walks out and they're like, oh, sorry, that's my car. And they hit the car alarm and it goes off. Well, that's sort of what Jesus is doing here. They come, they're in a hurry, they are worried for their life, they're hustling, they're bustling, they're trying to figure out how are we gonna stay alive? And so they finally go over to Jesus, who's at the back of the boat, in the stern, asleep on a cushion. They're shaking, they're waking him up, they're telling him, Jesus, get up, we're about to die. Don't you care that we're about to die? Jesus gets up and he says, if he looks at the storm, he's like, oh, yep, I'm sorry, that's my storm. And then he says a word and it stops. He does this because he owns the storm. At the sound of Jesus' voice, the chaos of creation, look, it rests. It obeys him. When you look at the verse when it says that after Jesus says, silence and be still, the wind ceased and there was a great calm, what's happening there is he says he respond, the wind responds to him, but also at the same time, the water turns to glass. Now, if you know anything about living at the ocean or being at the ocean, or if you even grew up on a lake, what you know is that it takes a while for the water to calm down after a storm, doesn't it? Like you go to this place, you go to the ocean, you you have a storm that comes through, the storm may pass, but it's not until hours afterwards that the water subsides and becomes smooth as glass. But what the Bible tells us here is that's exactly what happens at the sound of Jesus' voice. The wind stops, but also the water turns to glass. Creation obeys him. And everyone on board sees this. They're terrified. And they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So look, this is the power of Jesus. No one like him before or after. You have people like a Moses, yeah, they part the Red Sea, but he does it at the voice of, 
at the name of God himself, Jesus just speaks. No one like him has expressed this type of power before, but it's like Mark is just getting started, all right? So this in in and of itself is like mind-blowing, right? But it's like Mark is saying, if you think this is wild, then listen to what happens next, okay? So what we find is Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20, Jesus gets across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. So it's after the storm, Jesus and his disciples, they come to the shore, the side of the sea, and here's their welcoming party, a demon-possessed man. They literally get off of the boat, and then they're approached by this man that's, he goes by the name of Legion, Um, And what we find out is that he's a man that's possessed by many spirits. So he calls himself Legion because a legion was the largest unit in the Roman army, about 6,000 men. And so you could kind of say that he's like the super possessed guy, right? Like he has 6,000 spirits that are kind of conflicting inside of him. And what you see is he's a tortured man. He's been ostracized to the tombs. He's been rejected by all of his people. They can't confine him anymore. The chains that they try to put around his his wrists, they no longer would work. You would hear his voice at night screaming at the terror and the work that was going on inside of him. The Bible tells us that he would cut himself with rocks as he's at the tomb. So you have this man that cannot be controlled. He cannot be tamed by anyone. He's so unruly that he has to live in the tombs where those that are dead and diseased and have died find themselves. So Legion approaches Jesus, and here's what we see in verses six through seven. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. Now we need to stop here because this is really important. There's some things that happen in what he says that are just so crucial for us. So immediately upon meeting Jesus, the, spirit, the spirits inside of this man acknowledge two things about Jesus. They acknowledge one, his identity, but also two, his power. And we see this in both his actions and his words. So we see in verse six that this man comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. The word that's used for knelt down here literally means like a prostrating yourself before another person that's worthy of reverence and honor and worship. And then you see the words that he says. He declares that Jesus is the son of the most high God. That he is the one that can torment these 6,000 spirits that live within the man. So right out of the bat, this man has already done, these spirits that live inside of this man have already recognized and given more honor to Jesus than anyone else in the Gospel of Mark. No one else has recognized who Jesus is to the extent that these spirits that are possessing this man acknowledge Jesus at this point in time. It's clear who answers to whom in this story. These 6,000 spirits, it's not a battle. There's no fight that's going on from the very onset of seeing Jesus get off the boat onto the shore from the Sea of Galilee. The 6,000 spirits come out and they automatically know who's in charge. When demon meets divine, it's not a contest. It's a kneeling down, it's a prostrating, it's a reverence, it's a worship because they know who Jesus is. 
Even the untamable spirits, they answer to Jesus. So the spirits, they continue to beg Jesus not to send them away so that they can come up with this like proposition. So they know who's in charge. They know who possesses the authority. They know who Jesus is. And so they come and they barter with him. Say, hey, don't send us away from this region. Instead, send us to this herd of pigs so that we can stay within this region. And so Jesus allows them to go into the herd of pigs, these 2,000 pigs, that they're this dirty, they're this diseased animal that the Jewish people cannot associate themselves. So you already see the, the unclean spirits that are in this man. They're associating with the unclean animal of that point in time. And you see how unruly they are because these 2,000 pigs, they rush down back into the bank of the sea and they drown there. Again, all at the voice of Jesus. And so imagine that you're the person that's standing there. So you have this herd of pigs. You obviously, you have farmers back in the day. You have people that are overlooking these animals. They see everything that's just happened. And they're like, my job is on the line because these 2,000 pigs are now dead. Like, they're gone. And so they run back into town. They report exactly what's happened. All the people that are in the town, they come out to see what these men are reporting. And what do they come out to? They find this formerly possessed man. He's sitting He's properly dressed, and he's in his right state of mind. Now, imagine this, all right? This is the man that you've tried to chain. This is the man that you've tried to bound. This is the man that you've tried to do all the different things that you could possibly think about doing to control this man, but he's breaking through every single time. This is the man that's likely caused people harm, He's the one that people are afraid to even go out to the shore because of where this man lives. He's a man that lives in the place that you don't go, which are the tombs where the dead people live. And they come out and they see this man is sane. He's properly dressed. And they're like, oh my gosh, what's happened to this guy? Like we heard him just last night. And now... I see him, he's just sitting around in a circle like he's a normal human being. And so what the Bible says is they're astonished and they beg Jesus to leave the region. Jesus, you can't stay here. I mean, they should be turning the keys over to the city to Jesus, but instead they're giving him the cold shoulder. They're saying, no, Jesus, like, you have to get out here. You have to You have to go. Jesus, look, what has happened? We can't put words to this. Our minds can't comprehend this. Like, we need you to go. And so Jesus obliges. He opts back on the boat. And so that's, this, it's the conclusion of the second story where you just, people are just left blown away by what they experience in the life of Jesus. Who's this man that, Creation answers to him. They obey his voice. Who's this man that spirits know who he is, respond to him? There's no battle. They answer to his voice. Who is this man? And as incredible as these stories are, and as, as tremendous as the power that Jesus displays here, the very next one, it's like Mark is saving the best for last. Because what you see here is he shares two miracles that are done within one particular story. And in these stories, Mark shares with us that Jesus is so powerful that disease and death, they surrender to him. 
So we see this starting in um, verse 21 of chapter 5. Jesus, so here's what he's done. He's crossed the Sea of Galilee. He's ordered the creation to obey him and it answers to him. He gets to the seashore. He meets this demon-possessed man, 6,000 spirits that are inside of him. They abide by his voice, they respond to his voice, and then he crosses back over the sea, got back in the boat, crosses back over the sea, and what we see is that Jesus is met by the crowds. And as the story unfolds, it's like a sandwich, right? So there's a man, Jairus, that comes to Jesus, asking, begging, pleading that Jesus would go and heal his sick daughter. She's on her deathbed. So Jesus goes with her, and there's an interruption that happens on the way that there's this suffering woman. She comes and touches Jesus. But here's where the, the story starts. A Jewish leader, his name is Jairus. He comes, and just like we saw with Legion, he falls at Jesus' feet. But what we see here is not the respect. It's not the authority. It's not the recognition of who Jesus is that comes from Jairus's voice like we saw from Legion. Here's what he says in verse 23. My little daughter is dying. My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. Like you can hear the desperation in his voice. So Jesus, he goes with Jairus and the crowds that begin to follow him and along the way, there's a suffering woman that hears about Jesus. He, she hears that Jesus has come in. And here's what we know about this suffering woman, that she's suffering from a bleeding disorder, and she's been suffering from this bleeding disorder for 12 years. Like, just stop and think if you have some type of blood that is a constant pour out of your body. Like, that's something that alarms every single one of us, right? Right? And what the Bible says is that she spent all that she's had on doctors. And as she spent all that she has on doctors, what we find out is that these doctors don't help her condition. They actually make it worse. So she's in the most desperate place that you can possibly be. And so she hears that Jesus is coming, and here's what happens. She comes up behind Jesus, and this is an act of superstition. Because here's what she thinks. If I just touch his clothes, it'll make me well. And so she sneaks up behind Jesus. She touches his robe, and it works. The Bible says that immediately she's healed. She can feel it in her own body. She's like, man, it worked. And she thinks she can like sneak away in the night. But Jesus stops in his tracks because he senses that the power has left him. Blows, I, no one, like we can't, I, I can't even come up with an illustration for you there. Like we don't have this experience where we feel the power of us leave us. We, we just don't have, there's nothing I can try to equate that with. This, this is something that's just completely divine by Jesus. And so why would he stop to address this woman though? Like, he has a sick little girl that's about to die. Why would Jesus stop in his tracks? If this is a doctor, you get sued for malpractice. You have a girl that's dying, but you have a woman that has a chronic disease. If you're weighing the two, you go to the person that's about to die. But Jesus, he stops in his tracks. He's surrounded by people. There's this little girl, her life's on the line, and Jesus stops. And here's why he stops. Because what she's experienced is life changing, 
but it hasn't become life transforming yet. Her body has changed, her body has been healed, it's been physically healed. What she came for has been done, but Jesus is saying, it's, my work's not done here yet. It's life changed, it, this work has changed your life, but there's something more that needs to be done here. And so Jesus stops and he looks at his disciples and he says, who touched my clothes? And the woman, what the Bible tells us, the woman who his, has, his, uh, who was um, healed by Jesus, she comes and she falls at Jesus' feet and the Bible says that she just spills her guts. Tells him all the truth, all the the chronic disease that she's dealing with, what she has done. And here's what Jesus says, all right? Verse 34, he looks her in the eyes. He says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. So look, the woman's disease didn't surrender to superstition, but to faith in Jesus. So Jesus stops in his tracks because he sees that this woman thinks that like, it's her superstition that just by the touch of his robe, that's what healed her. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what is happening here. The power has left my body because you recognize the power that is within me and it's your faith that has healed you. It's not just your superstition. And so look what Jesus says. He says, your faith has saved you. Not just that your body is healed, He's saying, look, daughter, your body is healed, yes, but there's also been an even better work that has happened here. It's not just superstition by which your body's been healed, but it's now the faith that you came to me that now saves you. Your body is changed here for the moment, but your eternity is changed forever. All because of the power of Jesus. She gets more than she bargained for, a healed body, but also a healed eternity. And so, like, all of this is happening. Imagine being the crowd that's around Jesus. You're pressing in. There's all these things that you know about Jesus and what he's been doing. You want to hear just some of the teaching that he's been spouting off to people. You just want to be around him. You want to have pieces of Jesus just rub off on you. Like that's why the crowds are following him. And in the midst of this woman being healed, a messenger from Jairus's home comes and reports your daughter is dead. She's gone. Why bother the teacher anymore? So Jesus overhears this and he looks over to Jairus and just imagine the, how torn you are if you're Jairus. Like you come to Jesus in desperation. There's nowhere else you can go. Your little daughter is dying. He stops in his tracks. He heals another woman. And then this messenger comes and says, your daughter is dead. Like you have to be thinking that Jairus is both frustrated. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, don't be afraid, only believe. And so in the midst of probably some frustration that's going on inside of him, you also have this sense of hope of like, maybe he can still do something about this. I just saw what he did for this woman. Maybe there's still a chance. And so they arrive at Jairus' house, and it, what the Bible says is the people are a mess. They're high emotions, high tears. There's just complete wailing that's going on all around him. And in an attempt to comfort them, Jesus says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And the Bible says that they just laugh at him. They know this girl is dead. I mean, they've checked the pulse They've checked the breathing. They know that she's gone. 
And so they laugh at him. There's no way that she's just asleep. Now, if you look at this account in Matthew and Luke, it's clear that Jesus knows the girl is dead. He knows. He understands. He, he knows what he's stepping into. He knows the dire situation that he's walking into here. So why would Jesus say that she's just asleep? We get our answer in the very next words of Jesus. The Bible tells us he sits down next to the little girl. He takes her by the hand, and he speaks two things to her in Aramaic. Talitha kuam. Talitha means little girl, as you can see on the screen. Um, but it's actually a little bit more than that. It's like a pet name. Um, so it would be like if I were to go up to my little boys and be like, hey, hey little man, or um, hey, sweetie. And I addressed him like this very personal relation. That's how Jesus is responding to her. And then the words for kuam mean get up. Not be resurrected. Not get up from the grave. Not this is your deathbed and arise. Is just simply get up. It's as if Jesus is doing what her parents have done on multiple afternoons throughout her whole entire life. She's 12 years old, so it's likely that her parents have come in in the afternoon as she's waking up from a nap. They take her by the hand. They address her, little sweetie, hey, little girl, it's time to get up. And she gets up as if she's just waking up from a nap. And this is the reason that Jesus does this is because death surrenders to Jesus' power, guys. Death surrenders to Jesus' power. There's one pastor I thought put it so well this week. He says, it, it, he's speaking as if he's Jesus. If I have you by the hand, then death itself is nothing but sleep. So instantly the girl gets up and begins to walk around the house. She probably goes to, if she's like my boys, she probably goes to the cupboard and starts getting food and like throwing it down her mouth, you know? Like I can't keep food in my house because I have four little boys. And so that's probably what she does. Um, and what the Bible says, people are just utterly astounded. They're just shocked. They're amazed by what Jesus has done. In a matter of moments, both disease and death surrender to the touch and word of Jesus. People don't know what to do with this. They're just blown away by what has happened in Jesus' life. Like what he's been able to do, the power that he possesses. Now, before we move on to some application, we've looked at the three stories. Creation obeys him. The spirits answer to him. Disease and death surrender to him. Before we just move in and dive into some application for us, I want us to notice a few things here, all right? And every single one of these stories, every single one of them possessed, when Jesus exerts his power, the response is fear and trembling. It's fear and trembling. It's not like a heightened joy that takes place around Jesus. You have in the first story, Jesus calms the storm and the seas, and the Bible says they were terrified. The word terrified here is more it's more strict, it's more strong than the, the fear that they had in the midst of the storm. Why are they more fearful of Jesus than they are of the storm? Because the power that he possesses. They've never seen anybody like Jesus before in their life. The second story, Jesus heals the demon possessed. They're afraid and they beg Jesus to leave the region. They don't know what to do with him. They don't know what to do with this power that Jesus possesses. The third story, you have the woman that's the suffering woman 
Jesus stops in his tracks, who touched me? And she is struck with fear and trembling and she falls down before him. Every single story, the response to Jesus and the power that he exerts is fear and trembling. So you have to step back and ask why? There's an old psychologist, neurologist, Sigmund Freud. He has this belief that people invent God to deal with their fears. But look, these stories completely obliterate that theory. Why in the world would you create a God that is more fearful, that's more powerful than any of the things that you're trying to escape? It's not the proper response. Here's the proper response, all right? If we are understanding what Mark is trying to get across to us through these three stories, here's what we should be asking. If Jesus is so powerful that creation obeys him, that the spirits answer to him, that disease and death surrender to him, then what can he do in my life? If Jesus is this powerful and things feel like they are so stuck in my life, if things feel like there's so many different powers that are at work in my own life, the proper response to this is then what can Jesus do for me? It produces like this sense of hope inside of you that maybe there's still a chance for me. Because look, the answer to that question is that Jesus can transform your life. Jesus took on the storm of sin and death for us. This is a point to the gospel. Jesus willingly took on our chains and was driven into tombs for us. Jesus lost more than power when he lost his life so that he might live for so that we might live forever through him and his resurrection. Jesus would later prove that death is but a nap for all who believe in him because we will be risen with him on the time that he comes back. So look, you look at these stories, you look at the power of Jesus, you look at it with the sphere, the mindset of the gospel, and you look, there's hope for me. If Jesus is really as powerful as Mark says, there's hope for my life. So look, the proper response, here's our application. If Jesus is really as powerful as Mark makes him out to be, Jesus deserves both our trust as well as our witness. He deserves our trust and he deserves our witness. We look at these stories and we can say to ourselves, I can trust him. I can trust him. Because creation obeys Jesus, he can intervene and preserve my life through any storm that's taking place. We can look at the words of Jairus that Jesus says to Jairus and we can Think as if they're being said to us, don't be afraid, only believe. In the midst of the storm, you don't have to succumb to the fear. You can take up your cushion and go back to Jesus in the stern of the boat. Because he's got you. That's how powerful he is. When it feels like you have 6,000 spirits inside and that you're being pulled in all these different directions, like there's a war that's waging inside of you and you're losing the war, you can look at these these different stories of Jesus, and you can say he is powerful enough to liberate me from all the different directions that I'm being pulled. He can provide clarity, he can provide direction, and he can free me. You can look at Jesus 
and his healing of the sickness, whether it be mental, physical, or spiritual. And you can say, he can do the same thing in my life because death and disease surrender to him. And look, even whenever the fear that's ringing in your heart about the impending death that comes around you, you can look at Jesus, and you can be reminded that he takes you by the hand and that even though we may pass away, it's but mere sleep. Since Jesus, since creation obeys Jesus, the Spirit's answer to Jesus, since disease and death surrender to Jesus, then we can trust him with our storms, we can trust him with our demons, we can trust him with our sickness, and we can even trust him with our lives and our death. But secondly, we can also tell others about him. Not only does the power of Jesus transform our lives, it also empowers our story. Remember the story of the demon-possessed man. Um, In the story of this demon-possessed man, at the very end of the story, he asks if he can go with Jesus. And Jesus tells him no, which is a little, like, sets you aback. But then you look at verse 19, and here's what he says. Go home to your own people. And report to them how much the Lord has done for you. And look, and how he has had mercy on you. Well, guess what? (laughs) In Matthew 15, we find that Jesus comes back to the same region, and he's well received. If you look out, if you look at the history of the church, in any major meeting that took place in the history of the church, when they're gathering around, they're trying to decide which books of the Bible are to be the final canonical like conclusion of all the books of the Bible or whenever they're wrestling with who God is and they're making these firm, definitive statements about the Trinity of Jesus, there's a representative from this region that's always there. You know why that's the case? Because this man goes back and reports what Jesus has done in his life and the mercy that God has shown him. So much so that it produces, it reproduces like this good soil that when Jesus comes back to this region, he's well received. And even more than that, throughout the history of the church and some of the most critical points in time of the church, you see people from this region that are there. It's because of this man's witness. This demon-possessed man that was cast out into the tombs as if he were dead, he's brought back to life through Jesus, and he's given a powerful story. That's the power now of your testimony too. If you've trusted in Jesus, that means he's done a life-transforming work, not just a life-changing work where you've touched out and reached his garments. He's done a life-transforming work where it's not just your body that is healed. It's not just your mind that is healed. Your eternity is healed forever. And now you have a kingdom story that you get to go share with other people. The power of God working through you to transform other people as well. We step back and we look at the power of Jesus. It produces hope. And then it leads us to say, I trust him and I'm going to tell people about him. Creation obeys him. The spirits answer to him. Disease and death, they surrender to him. Friends, just imagine what he can do for you. Imagine how he can intervene in your life. Appropriate response is that you trust him. 
that you go tell others about them. Let's pray.